As you're turning now in your Bibles with me to Psalm 84, for those that are part of the process, or willing to be part of the process of uh, picking up the chairs at the end of our service this morning, it'll be just chairs only. We'll be leaving the staging as well as the sound booth in the back for next Sunday. So thank you as you're, you're assisting in that way. This passage of scripture we're looking at today has ministered to counselors throughout the years. Because what counselors who love Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior have done is to link, link Psalms 42 and 43 to Psalm 84. Take Psalm 42 and multiply it by 2, you get to 84 and you can create your own linkage. What these psalms share in common is that they are rooted in a passage of Scripture in 2 Samuel 15 through 20. Psalms 42 and 43 deal with spiritual depression, the downcast soul. David was downcast as he had to leave Jerusalem because he found out his son Absalom had planned a revolt against David. In 2 Samuel 20, David is returning to Jerusalem and has found out that Absalom has been put to death by one of David's soldiers. So here you have the tensions and the conflicts emotionally for the soul to process. As the psalmist in Psalm 42 and again in 84 ministers to David in his downcast soul condition. So what I want to do now is to link last week's study in Psalm 42-43 with this one in Psalm 84 as we continue to process now how do we minister, particularly going into the Thanksgiving season, to the individual who's struggling with what the psalmist might call the downcast soul, the one who grapples with spiritual depression. And how do we find our way out of this dilemma? You'll notice that the superscription to Psalm 84 is for the director of music. It is according to the Getith, which was a 12-string instrument. Evidently, David responded well to the stringed instruments just as David would use the stringed instrument to minister to Saul when Saul was experiencing spiritual depression. So now this psalmist ministers to David as David grapples with spiritual depression. As we noted last week, it was three steps forward, two steps back as he was climbing this mountain of despair. We saw his social isolation, physical isolation, spiritual isolation, and pondered the causes and the symptoms of spiritual depression, the downcast soul. What we find now is that David is returning to, rather than heading from, Jerusalem. He's going to regain position of leadership within the land. But on this pilgrimage back, he's grappling with the issues of life. He's regaining the kingdom, but he has lost his son. 
If you've ever been in a situation where you have simultaneously gained something and lost something of significance, gained something and lost someone of significance, these verses again minister to our hearts. So if Psalm 42-43 poetically picture the downcast soul of the individual who leaves Jerusalem, David is viewed in 2 Samuel 15. Psalm 84 paints the picture of the one who is returning to Jerusalem with a bag of mixed emotions rooted in 2 Samuel 19 and 20. Notice with me as I begin reading the similar language which was used last week in Psalm 42, 43, and how it relates to what we just sang this morning. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord Almighty! My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Even the sparrow has found a home, and the swallow a nest for herself where she may have her young, a place near your altar. O Lord Almighty, my King, my God, blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. Blessed are those who strengthen you, who have set their hearts on pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The autumn rains also cover it with pools. They go from strength to strength till each appears before God in Zion. Hear my prayer, O Lord God Almighty. Listen to me, O God of Jacob. Look upon our shield, O God. Look with, your, with favor on your anointed one. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. O Lord Almighty, blessed is the man who trusts in you. We're going to bridge now as we keep thinking about how you minister to the downcast soul. Let's look to God in prayer. So, Father, I pray for anyone who finds himself, herself, in the situation of the what the psalmist described last week as the downcast soul, spiritually battling off despair, depression. And now we find ourselves entering into Thanksgiving week. And how do we deal with all these challenges of conflicting emotions that come our way when life may throw us an unexpected pitch we weren't ready and what we want Father is to have a tremendous understanding of who you are how you work what your design is for this world in general and our lives in particular so as the psalmist ministered to David on the journey back 
I pray now these words will minister to anybody in these services today who finds himself herself on a journey back. Meet each one, I pray now, in this pilgrimage at the point of need. Praying this in Jesus' name. Amen. Robert Rainey has written a wonderful book for children. It's entitled Thanksgiving, A Time to Remember, and has chronicled the experiences of the pilgrims who made their way across the waters to this country. As every child knows, she writes, the pilgrims arrived in the New World in the winter of 1620. And as the freezing weeks passed, nearly half their number died. It was a terrible time. But by spring, things began to improve. Friendly Indians helped the pilgrims plant their crops. By October 1621, the fields yielded a harvest large enough to sustain the colony in the coming winter. The grateful pilgrims invited their Indian friends to a three-day feast of thanksgiving to God. That's where the story typically ends for us. But for the pilgrims, the hardships went on. The next month, a ship arrived with 35 new colonists. But to the pilgrims' dismay, they brought no provisions. The entire colony was forced to go on half ration that winter, and at one point, with food running out, everyone, children included, was forced onto a daily ration of just five kernels of corn. By spring, the colony was weakened by hunger and sickness. And while the bay and creeks were full of fish, the pilgrims' nets had rotted. Were it not for the shellfish, which could be dug by hand, they would have perished. Yet despite the great difficulties, and I've underlined this, they thanked God for his provision. One of the great challenges for the downcast soul is when you find yourself in a thankless condition, are you still willing to give thanks? When life produces thankless situations, can you still provide a sense of thankfulness to the one who's sovereign over life? Our willingness to place our will above our emotions will determine the degree to which we are growing in spiritual oneness with Christ. What you and I find here is a pilgrim's progress unfolding in these verses. David had left Jerusalem in 2 Samuel 15. Of all people, his son, Absalom, had usurped David's authority, staged revolt. David had to leave. He had a downcast soul, as expressed in the opening verses of Psalm 42, as we noted. Social isolation, physical isolation, spiritual isolation. 
He had all the symptoms of spiritual depression, the fatigue, the crying, the agitated soul, that sense of despair and that sense of abandonment. They're all listed there as we noted. And now he has to process these conflicting emotions that he can return to Jerusalem. He can go home again. Yet his son is dead. He loved his son. On the other hand, his son would have put his father to death for the sake of the kingdom and achieving authority over it. What do you do when you have such conflicting thought processes on your own spiritual pilgrimage where you are gaining something while simultaneously losing someone in the experiences of life? So I want to talk still further about this subject of three steps forward, two steps back pertaining to spiritual depression. As now Psalm 84 helps to clarify Psalm 42, what we're going to do is to notice, first of all, descriptions of the blessed person. Because Thanksgiving week is the time to count our blessings. So like the pilgrims, we will offer thanks to God. But with the description of the blessed people, it has to also be understood the doxology of the blessed people. And a doxology is simply a, an offering of praise to God. And you will see it in verse 4, in verse 5, in verse 12, in those three verses to find the three musical stanzas found in this poetic expression of gratitude to God. So let's start by noticing the description of blessed people as we continue to ponder the tension point between the downcast soul and the God who is uplifting that soul to its place of spiritual oneness with Him. The Gatith is playing. It's one of the sons of Korah who is providing the music. It's now the words are being expressed, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord Almighty! My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for thee, and I've underlined this. The living God. There are three descriptions of blessed people I find in these verses. And the first one is this, number one. Blessed people seek communion with the living God. Notice at the end of verse 2, it says, My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. All the other religions of this world are either based upon an idea or upon a dead founder. Christianity is based not upon simply an idea not on a dead founder, but a living Savior. You peer into the grave and you find out there is uh, no vacancy. The grave is filled with the remains of false religions. But you peer into the grave of the founder of Christianity, and there's a vacancy. There's, a, there's an empty space there, because he's not dead, he is living, he's risen, you see. 
Now, the Christian, as he or she continues to process the downcast soul syndrome, has to understand that your starting point is critical to your ending point. If you function day in, day out as if he is the dead God, then life will seem hopeless, your decisions will seem to be in vain, and all of life will be one confusing maze of despair. What the person has to do in the onset of his or her pilgrimage is to pour into the mindset the idea that we are dealing with the living God. Interestingly, it's the very same phrase which was used at the start of Psalm 42, which is now used again in Psalm 84. How you begin shapes how you will end. Now, back to verse 1, where it says, How lovely is your dwelling place. You know what's fascinating here? If you were to check out 2 Samuel 15, and begin reading the section where David, upon finding out that Absalom was leading a revolt against him, you would find out that David anticipates returning to his dwelling place. 2 Samuel 15:25. He says, My soul yearns, even faints for the courts of the Lord. And here is that, that sense of intense longing that so describes the psalmist. My heart, my flesh cry out, for the living God. Now the downcast soul has to continuously ask, what is my soul crying out for? When you are able to answer that question, it will go a long way to helping you to determine the pilgrimage that you are on and the destination that you are facing. The wise counselor links direction to destination and probes the whole matter of the yearning soul and begins to ponder the question, just what is this soul truly yearning for? More fame? More respect? A job? Progressing up the ladder? The repair of a damaged relationship? Health matters? We live in a culture of the yearning soul. And life in its pilgrimage throws us incredible detours. Lori Tempest, young mother, the tumor, St. Nick's. Carol Vandervrede, young mother, the tumor down at St. Luke's as we've been ministering over the course of these days, along with a host of other matters, the question is, can a person who finds himself or herself in a context where society says that is a thankless situation, so produce within the mindset the idea of the living God, that they can produce life within a lifeless context in the eyes of the world. Thankfulness in a thankless context in the eyes of the world. 
David's having to ponder this. Is Absalom living? No. Is God living? Yes. In the midst of the conflicting emotions of life, which will have dominance as he processes the meaning of life in his pilgrimage? For some of us, is your job there? No. Seems dead. For some, they look at a child who once was living but is no longer part of the family unit. For others, they had a marriage which at one time was alive but now is dead and, and they are separated or divorced. And the person is struggling in this pilgrimage. Now, will the deadness overcome the life found in God? Or will life overcome the deadness of the circumstances we find ourselves in? Again and again and again, what the psalmist does in both Psalm 42 and 84 is to reintroduce the idea of the living God to the mindset of the hurting soul. Do you? Is the living God your starting point in all this? So my heart and my soul cry out, and you've got to ask yourself again the question, what does my heart, personally, what does my soul cry out for? And if you can answer for the living God, you've set yourself on the right journey. You can go home again. In verse 3, the psalmist puts it poetically for David to process. Even the sparrow has found a home. David, you've been displaced. You're away from Jerusalem. You've been displaced by your own son. Talk about family rebellion. Dysfunctional family. He's got it. On this pilgrimage, David's going to be processing his own sins of the past and how it might have led and how it did lead to the issues of the conflicted family unit he found himself in. As he's making his way back, he's probably wondering, can I return home again? How will I be received? Will I be accepted? Has the nation turned its loyalty to the memory of Absalom? Dr. Morrison tells of his time of traveling around the world sharing the gospel of Christ Jesus. At the same time he was on his trip, Teddy Roosevelt was on a trip to Africa. While Morrison was communicating the gospel, Roosevelt was in Africa hunting. Shooting game. Upon Roosevelt's return, the mayor greeted him, and the governor greeted him, and he got a ticker tape parade. And as his motorcade made its way through the streets of New York back to his home, thousands upon thousands were there to welcome his return. Interestingly, Morrison also boarded a train home, and there was no one to greet him. No one to beat him. And only one person who recognized him was the baggage master who couldn't even remember his name. Houston Morrison said, 
I picked up my heavy gripes and started off all alone. I couldn't help contrasting the homecoming of the president with my own. God had privileged me to share the gospel with thousands, and yet there I was without a soul to even meet me upon my return. Nobody cared. Suddenly I stopped. A new truth had gripped my heart. And I found myself saying aloud, slowly, exultantly, Maybe I'm not home yet. Maybe I'm not home. The challenge for the downcast soul is that it's operating on the sense of feeling homeless. The downcast soul feels dislodged, so to speak from its spiritual home and relationship to to Yahweh God. David is chronicling in his mind his departure from his home and now the return to the home, wondering how will he even be received by those around the neighborhood. As the psalmist ministering to him on his guitar sings, even the sparrow has found a home and the swallow a nest for herself. And David, who would be well familiar with the, the courtyard of the tabernacle, would ponder how in the open tabernacle experience, sparrows would find natural nesting places. They could get close. Yet David feels so far away. You ever felt that way? But notice what the psalmist does for the soul. In verse 3, even the sparrow has found a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may have her young, a place near your altar. And what has he done for David at this point? He has transported David on David's own spiritual pilgrimage to the place where relationship with God is established the altar, where sinless God and sinful humanity find a a place where issues are dealt with and sin is addressed, sacrifice performed, the altar being a directional sign to the cross of Christ Jesus. The wise person who addresses the downcast soul syndrome brings to the forefront the idea of the living God, not the dead expectations. Brings to the forefront the centerpiece of where sinless God and sinful humanity can find relationship established, the altar experience. So what you and I have to do then, when we find ourselves in a thankless condition while wanting simultaneously to offer thanks to God is to bring the altar to the centerpiece, the central portion of our lives. The psalmist is ministering here. What's the centerpiece of your life? What keeps you going when life seems so extreme? There's this place near the altar that he wants David to be at. Oh, Lord Almighty. And then as the psalmist continues to sing this to David, he says, My 
king, my God. When he says my king, he's not singing at this point as uh, though the king is David. He is singing that the king here is Yahweh God. David has been grappling with who's king. Is it Absalom or is it David? Lift your eyes higher, David. It's God. You can't dethrone God from his throne. And one of the great challenges in spiritual depression is that slowly but surely the person has dethroned God from the throne and tried to seize control over their thoughts, over their emotions, over life's experiences. He brings him back, the psalmist does, to who truly is God. Whenever you get good theology, you get good doxology. So he says, blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are forever praising you. And then he says, Selah. Which is a musical term for a rest in the midst of the musical measures. He wants David to pause here to think about life's experiences, about where we are meant to dwell with God. Corey Tenboom in The Hiding Place tells of a story in which she had to choose to be thankful. She and her sister Betsy had just been transferred to the worst German prison, Ravensbrück. It's World War II. Overcrowded, flea infested. That morning, she writes in the hiding place, scripture reading in 1 Thessalonians uh, uh, challenged us to rejoice always, pray constantly, give thanks in all circumstances. As he, she looked around at the less than ideal situation. Betsy told Corey to stop and thank the Lord for every detail of their living quarters. Corey, I love her honesty, flatly refused. Refused to give thanks to the for the fleas. Betsy persisted, and Corey finally succumbed to her pleadings and began to praise God for the fleas. During the next months in the camp, they were incredibly surprised to find how openly they could hold Bible study and prayer meetings without God interference. Why? It was not until several months later that they learned the reason the guards would not enter the barracks was because of the fleas. What God will do is to take a person who has maintained the theology of the living God, who has brought the idea of the author of God into the flea-infested experiences of life, and while everybody else says this is extreme and thankless, he or she challenges the soul to be thankful in the midst of the thankless. And when you function that way, you are not allowing the externals of life to shape your relationship to God. You are allowing your relationship with God to shape your view of the externals of life. And then watch out how God uses the externals of life 
to shape the lives of others because of the way you have been handling them. Because you live for the living God. And you've stayed close to the altar. So there's the psalmist, and they're making their way back, and David has such conflicting emotions. But blessed people seek communion with the living God, oneness with Him. But there's a second description found in verses 5 through 7. After the Selah, where David allowed for this to sink in, the second description comes forth. Number two, blessed people draw strength from the sovereign God. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, who have set their hearts on pilgrimage. Notice that it says, blessed are those whose strength is in you. Doesn't find strength in their, in their, in their stamina. Doesn't find strength in their intellectual capacity. Doesn't find strength in their, in their emotional makeup. David is going to have to wrestle with where will he find his strength to handle the pilgrimage of life. It's in you, God. Not in me. It's in you. And when life takes from you, God gives to you. And when you no longer find strength in life, you can still find strength in God. It goes on to say, who have set their hearts on pilgrimage. Which means then that you and I have to accept the fact that life is a pilgrimage. There is a destination, but there is also a sense of journey to that destination. And the test of maturity is how we handle the journey. There will be stops along the way, hurdles along the way, detours along the way, conflicts along the way. Now the question the person has to process is, have I set my heart for the pilgrimage? Are you proactive or reactive? when it comes to life's journey for moments. It was 1603 and King James had assumed the throne of England and everybody assumes must have been a great king. Uh, many people carry around with them the King James Version Bible. Not so fast. What he decided to do was to oppose everybody who would oppose his leadership of the Church of England met the Puritans and the Pilgrims. And in a fit of rage against the Pilgrims, he vowed, quote, I shall make them conform, or I will send them out of the land, or else do worse. Unquote. The Pilgrim Fathers then had to make certain their hearts were set for the pilgrimage before it took place, rather than trying to set their hearts in the midst of the pilgrimage because many lives were lost on the waters of the Atlantic. 
The wise person then is proactive, introducing the living God to the thought process, drawing the soul near the altar of God for life's experiences, sets the heart right for the pilgrimage rather than trying to react to the pilgrimage by now saying, "Uh oh, I better get my heart right. Notice in verse 6, as they pass through the valley of Baker, it does not say as they pass around the valley of Baker. What is the valley of Baker? Baker means literally weeping. And notice it says as they pass through the valley of Baker, they make it a place of springs. In other words, the desert, arid conditions of Baca, they will, they choose to take the deserted conditions of life and produce spring water from them. Now what we may find in our own experiences in this pilgrimage that we are on is that we are in desperately arid conditions. It might be the desert of life. The desert is the alone place that Moses in the Old Testament and John the Baptist in the New Testament encountered. It is the place where God gets people's attention. While the eyes are hydrating the cheeks because we are told they pass through the valley of Baca, the tears are rolling down the cheeks, the valley of weeping literally. They make it a place of hydration, a place of springs. The autumn rains also cover it with pools. Why? Because you find strength in God in verse 5. You find refreshment from God in verse 6. You experience renewal for God in verse 7. They go from strength to strength. You will not go from strength to weakness when you follow this plan. Because God is with you on your journey. God does not exhaust His supply of grace for you at the beginning of the journey so that you have nothing left to experience in the middle, let alone the end of the journey. And so each day produces a new realm of strength from God. And you will not deplete that resource because He is the living God. That's your starting point. So your strength resides in God, verse 5. Your strength is refreshed from God, in verse 6. Your strength is renewed for God, in verse 7. And this is how you minister to the three steps forward, two steps back, downward spiral of the downcast soul syndrome. Bruce Catton, when he wrote a book about the U.S. Civil War entitled Glory Road, found out that his state of Michigan had set aside a particular road in honor of his book and called it Glory Road and went right past his home in Michigan. Couldn't wait to get back to Michigan to see the road. Took a walk up Glory Road and then he found posted on it a sign along the way that said, Dead End. 
That's life. But what God is saying is that He is the living God when life throws you a sense of dead end. So you draw your strength from the sovereign God. Why? Because you have been seeking communion with the living God. Once you've got living down, you can deal with the sovereign idea and get it right. But here comes your third description. The number three, blessed people place trust in the gracious God. Now I want you to look for grace in these verses, starting in verse 8. He gets personal. In my prayer, O Lord, God Almighty, listen to me, O God of Jacob. Notice he uses Lord, capital L-O-R-D, that's Yahweh, that's Jehovah, that's the all-present God. God Almighty, that's the all-powerful God. God of Jacob, it's the all-relational God. Hear my prayer, O Lord God Almighty. Listen to me, O God of Jacob. And he says, Selah. And now as the psalmist has seen this aloud for David, as David once sang aloud for Saul, and as the psalmist is meeting the needs of the one who's wondering, can you go back home again? He pauses. The psalmist now continues uh, using battlefield imagery because he knows that David has been a warrior throughout his life. Look upon our shield, O God. Look with favor on your anointed one. And David ponders the shield he might have used in battle. And then when he hears anointed one, the psalmist ministers to him because the psalmist is speaking of David who is an installment on the line of the anointed ones leading to the ultimate anointed one Messiah, Christ Jesus. He's saying God's got a plan, David. So as David ponders the shield and the plan, how God has preserved him as anointed one, he then adds this in verse 10, better is one day in your course than a thousand elsewhere. We sang that earlier. Well, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. In verse 11, For the Lord God is a sun and shield. Sun, where the sun provides you a sense of direction for life. Shield, Shield provides a sense of protection of life. The Lord bestows favor, and that's your idea of grace. Honor. No good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. O Lord Almighty, blessed is the man who trusts in you. There's the placing of trust in the gracious God, the one who bestows. And it all starts with the idea of the living God in verse 2. And as he sings of the living God to David, David now has to hearken back to the time where in 1 Samuel chapter 15, David with, with shield in front ponders Goliath. And challenges him with the notion twice in 1 Samuel 15 that he's there on behalf of the living God. You see? Now, that's grace. You ever read The Giving Tree? A story of grace. 
It's about a tree that talks. Now, the giving tree was a tree that the boy loved. And when the boy was young, he swung from the tree's branches and climbed over her, ate her apples, slept in her shade, happy, carefree days. And the tree loved those years. The boy grew. The boy spent less and less time with the tree. Come on, let's play, invited the tree on one occasion, but he was now a young man. He was only interested in money. So the tree called out, well then take my apples and sell them. The young man did, and the tree was still happy. He got to be with the boy. But then the boy departed and didn't return for a long time, but the tree smiled when he passed by one day. Come on, let's play. But the man was older now, tired of this world, wanted to get away from it all. So the tree called out again, Well then cut me down. Take my large trunk. Make yourself a boat. You can sail away. So the man did and cut it down to a stump and the tree was still happy to give. Many seasons passed, summers and winters, windy days, lonely nights, and the tree waited and waited and waited. Finally, the old man returned. Too old and tired to play. Too old and tired to pursue riches. Too old and tired to sail the seas. The tree smiled. You know, I still have a pretty good stump left. My friend, why don't you just sit down on me and rest, said the giving tree. He did, and the tree was happy to give. And God delights to give. Let's tie it together. Good theology requires good doxology. Doxology is simply praise to God. Get your arms around verses 4, 5, and 12, and you'll find a common idea. People are blessed, and they want to thank God, even in the tough times like the, like the pilgrims did, for the blessings. Verse 4, blessed are those who dwell in your house. They're ever praising you. Verse 5, blessed are those whose strength is in you. You've set their hearts on pilgrimage. Pilgrims. Verse 12, O Lord Almighty, blessed is the man who trusts in you. Let's tie it together with a, a spirit of thankfulness going into thanksgiving. What can we offer in terms of a doxology? It's this. As we approach thanksgiving, we should offer a spirit of doxology. For what? For God's nature and grace. And when you do that, somebody around the table who has the downcast soul will find that all of a sudden eyes are being lifted upward to the one who gives. Let's stand together. Thanking you, Father.
thanking you for being our God. Thanking you for the opportunity to give thanks to you. Many of us will gather together Wednesday night corporately to walk up to microphones and aisles and express thanks to you in this building. And then we'll be gathered around tables, some smaller, some larger, some may even be alone. But we'll lift our eyes upward to you and realize we're not alone. We're with you, the living God who delights to give. And we praise you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.